So this morning we are uh, considering the passage from Philippians that uh, Veronica read, Philippians 1 to 18, and I'll be concentrating particularly on the section in verses uh, 6 to 11 in which Paul describes Jesus as an example for the Philippians to follow, indeed for us to do so. I've entitled it, as you can see, with my ducks all in a row, following the example of Jesus. The sharp-eyed among you will have spotted that the reading had uh, a slightly different format in the middle. Um, we moved from prose to, uh, to poetry. Some uh, of the Bible publishers think that the bit that Paul is quoting is an early church hymn, and as a result, moving from poetry to pro- from prose to poetry, um, we recognize a, uh, an early Christian hymn. So, to set this in context very briefly, as we know from Richard's previous sermon, this is a letter that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to a very young church community in the the Greek town of Philippi. Uh, Paul's own missionary activities, you may remember he was a missionary, and uh, his words had got him into trouble with the authorities, uh, both religious and political, and his preaching has landed him in prison from where he now writes this letter to his Philippian friends. And this letter, like so many others by Paul, contains not only information about uh, what he's taught them, a reminder, if you will, he's a good teacher, but also advice as to how to lead uh, a good Christian life. And as Richard has said, also the whole overarching theme of this book, of this letter, is joy. And we shall be uh, meeting more of that in Richard's later sermons. And indeed, in this chapter, Paul doesn't take long before uh, the theme of joy is uh, at his pen. We pick it up in verse 2 where he says, Make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. So these Christians in Philippi are clearly a group of people that Paul takes delight in. They've brought him joy. Perhaps he remembers individuals. Perhaps he remembers certain characters uh, among them. But certainly what will have made him rejoice the most was that they were the ones who heard the message of Christ, who accepted it with gladness, and have gone on to create this community, this new young church. And that will have filled him uh, with joy. He probably around his prison cell won't have had photos uh, of various friends in the way that we do. We put them up on our mantelpiece and we we go by them, we look at them and we smile as we are reminded of, of places, of people that we knew. But that memory nonetheless for him brought him joy, that recollection. However, those recollections are tarnished it appears, by what he's heard about these young Christians. It's clear from what he writes that there are divisions. There are perhaps fallings out, conflict. There will be tensions. And Paul knows, he thinks, the reason, the cause of this, uh, this, this lack of, uh, of joy in the Christian community. And it's something which will not only rob them, but also rob us of joy, And he decides that he's going to home in on it and make sure that his Philippian friends know what to do. The issue, the thing that he takes issue with, 
is selfishness. This will be his focus for the first few verses and indeed others uh, in the book. We don't need Paul to tell us, of course, that selfishness is one of the most undesirable qualities a human can have. We try to bring up our children not to be selfish, to share, to think of others. Because as adults, we know that selfishness is a, a cancer which eats away at relationships and destroys social life. People who are out for number one are unpleasant to be around. Their self-centered ambition runs counter to good company and to sensible decisions. A conceited and egotistical person whose conversation is only ever about them is not an attractive one. We don't need Paul to tell us that. And yet, even though we may not like to see selfishness and its consequences, it's quite often the result of something which society almost approves of. You see, one of the most popular mantras or mottos of society, our culture today, is follow your heart. Have you heard it? Do you believe that it's something that we should sign up to? You should do whatever, so it says, you feel is right. If you feel you're being challenged, that your self-worth is being diminished, you should then stand up for yourself. You've heard this, haven't you? You should demand your rights. And if people question any of your decisions, then you should say, in effect, you're just following your heart. I'm doing things my way. Frank Sinatra wasn't the first to have those words on his lips. I hope that's okay with you. I'm doing it my way. And if someone questions the truthfulness of what you're saying, then you can reply and say, but this is, Meghan Markle, my truth. This is my truth. The world today encourages us all to follow our hearts. And if your heart tells you that something feels good or it feels right to think or say or do something, then go ahead. Ignore what others might feel. Just follow your heart. But the Bible's repeated message is this. It's one that may come as a surprise, I don't know. It's that we should not follow our heart because the message that it sends out are not reliable. Drink it in. To be fair, the suggestions that come from what we might think of as the conscience, that's fair enough. We perhaps need to listen to that. But just because we feel something, just because our heart is moving us in a particular direction, should not be the be-all and end-all. God is on record as saying to the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Now we know what being deceitful is. We don't trust the person who is deceitful and as far as the Bible is concerned, we should neither trust our heart. And Paul was familiar with that text with many others besides, doubtless. And he would have known that following your heart is a risky strategy to find joy, his theme, in Christian life. So that's not his message. What does he recommend instead? Well, many of us 
the more conceited, perhaps, among us, know the value of following wise advice. We are just often too, too proud and too blinkered to see ourselves and our behavior from the right perspective. We need others with their different perspective to take a good look at us, to see our shortcomings, and in love, gently to point them out to us. I'm sure it's happened to you. And it may have been, indeed, that the Christians in this community simply didn't realize that their, I don't know, confident, self-assertive, inconsiderate behavior was harming themselves as individuals and the community, the wider community at large. Were they even aware that joy in their community was at a low ebb? They needed to hear someone else's viewpoint. And so Paul steps in. And because he presumably hasn't got too much ink to waste, he gets straight to the blunt point. Do nothing, verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others... Above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. It's fairly direct. I think if if I'd been, if we had been writing this letter, wouldn't we have been a bit more British in our diplomacy and tact? A bit more gentle? But Paul is blunt. Don't be selfish. Consider first of all the well-being of others. And of course, it's good advice. And in Britain and in other civilized countries, we might well be nodding our heads and be saying, yes, this is is indeed fair enough. But of course, we'd acknowledge that these words alone, I've been a teacher for 40 years, and the words of advice alone are probably not going to turn around the Philippians' attitudes no more than they might do our, our own. Paul's advice runs counter to the follow-your-heart way of living, but it's merely advice. (laughs) And we all know how we follow advice, don't we? The fact is that humans are not good at following advice. This is a scene that possibly may have been uh, replicated in the Wager household. Uh, I may have bought some flat-pack furniture, Um, I know that included in the box uh, are instructions, advice on how to go about assembling this particular item. But I, arrogant male that I am, I'm full of confidence that I can handle it. I'll just take the pieces out of the box. I'll start assembling. It's not hard. It'll be done in no time at all. But inevitably... My self-confidence, my overconfidence hits a brick wall. And what do we do? Well, I need to find the instructions. There's something in all of us that's not good at even taking advice, wise words of advice. I mean, have you ever tried giving your children advice? Or working with them and trying to advise them against doing, don't do that, advising them against doing something that is clearly not going to end up well. I've worked with children, as I say, for 40 years, and like us adults, they are not great at doing as they're told. But there's hope. And in this little motto is a great element of truth, and Paul is going to build upon it. Your children will follow your 
example, although perhaps not your advice, which, of course, throws a great responsibility onto us. Indeed, the learning, as I know, that children do by emulating, by copying, imitating those who are their role models is learning which stays longer. It remains deeper embedded than those words that they may have heard all along of their education. It's a fact then, here are my ducks again, that we learn best by looking, watching, noting, and following our, we call them role models, as you know. In childhood, we follow and imitate our, pat- our parents' pattern of uh, speech. It's fascinating to hear my children use phrases that I know I've used. And their mannerisms, and heaven knows I hope they don't copy my mannerisms, but there we are. Uh, Later on, of course, we observe them and we acquire our parents' practical skills. We see how they they do a variety of things. And, And we even adopt some of their attitudes and some of their opinions. And it's not just parents, because when we're older, they get to school and they have those, and, and we refer to this phenomenon as peer pressure. Those that are around them, their friends and others whom they might look up to, they are the ones who have the biggest influence on their character, on their behavior. And Paul knows this, and he knows who the best role model is. He could have simply quoted a few lines from Jesus' teaching to these young believers, but instead he tells them, look, you need to follow an example, the incomparable example of selfishness, selflessness in Jesus. As he says in, uh, uh, in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. It's a difficult word to translate, and the verse that Veronica read has a slightly different slant to it. But it, it means the way of thinking about something, a mindset. Just consider how Jesus approached his life, he says, the way that he thought about things, and how that mindset affected what he did. Here is what that mindset meant for Jesus. Paul points the Philippian Christians back in time, indeed back into eternity past, and says, verse 7, Jesus made himself nothing and took the very nature of a servant. I've heard this in the playground far too often, and you may have had it said to you, you're nothing. You amount to nothing. It's said by somebody who wants to put you down, to diminish your self-worth. Well, Jesus did this to himself. He made himself nothing. The one who is the all-powerful God, surprisingly, was not in the business of of being self-important. Instead, he humbled himself. We might even say that this was an exercise of self-humiliation. And when he was here on earth, he took the very nature of a servant. The Greek word actually means a slave. The total deprivation of your rights, a slave. The Almighty One, the one who spoke a word and it was done, is now on the receiving end of orders. In early life, doubtless, he did as he was told by his parents, running chores running errands, doing chores. 
And later in life doing the job, you see it in the picture. You'll remember the job of the lowliest of all the slaves in a household, washing that of washing the feet of the visitors. And moreover, he wraps himself in the limitations of humanity. Being made, verses 7 and 8, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. What a... What a change. What a come down. The almighty God puts aside the trappings of Godhood and becomes a man. When, when we think of God, long posh words, of course, we might say omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. The God who was once present everywhere now learns how humans cope with being in one place at one time. The one who was once all-powerful now learns how humans struggle to cope with their own physical weakness. And the one who once knew all things from beginning to end now learns the limitations of the human mind. But his humbling, his humiliation, if you will, doesn't stop there. If you know the story of Jesus, you'll know that it's one apparent humiliation after another. Born in a cow shed, raised in a backwater village in some distant Middle Eastern country. A manual labor whose words would put him at odds, not only with the authorities, but even with his own family. And despite his great acts of kindness to ordinary people, it was finally one of his best friends who betrayed him to those authorities who put him through a sham trial, he, the Holy One, accused, during which the rest of his friends abandoned him to his fate, and we know his fate. As Paul puts it in verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, and even death on the cross. It's hard for us at uh, this distance to understand not just how agonizing the crucifixion probably was, but also the level of humiliation. It's not our culture, it's, it's a remote culture. But the level of humiliation is considerable. For the Jews, there was no greater shame than, as they put it, hanging on a tree. That was the greatest of the shame that could be ever poured on someone in their death. And the Romans were the same. The Roman word for a cross, crooks, was a four-letter word in Roman society. It was an obscenity. And Paul knew this level of, of shame, but it's something which he recognizes and says, yes, Jesus even humbled himself. He chose this path. But thankfully, Paul has come to the turning point in his letter. In verse 8, uh, verse 9, he goes on. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. Now, Jesus himself had taught his disciples, I wonder if you remember the quotation, those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those that humble themselves will be exalted and now his humility is going to be the grounds for himself being raised 
to the highest status. God the Father was going to complete this reversal of humiliation by bestowing on his son a reward, a gift. But what gift, you might ask, could he possibly give to the one who, with the Father, created all things and owns all things? Paul says in verse 9, See, we've jumped some slides. Paul says in verse 9 that God gave him a name. No, he doesn't. God gave him the name that is above every name. Now, we parents agonize over the names that we give to our children. A quick shout out to all the Noahs and the Olivias out there because your names are the most popular this year. But the name that's going to be given to Jesus isn't even his own name, Jesus. Well, he had it already, of course. And it was his earthly name. It was the name that was given to him at at birth. You'll call his, and his name will be called Jesus. There will be no greater name than the name that is given to Jesus. The name, it will be above every name. And Paul goes on to mention it later in the chapter, but it's quite clearly, we may as well tell you now, It's this word, Lord. Jesus is Lord. Christians use it, of course, of Jesus all the time. And rightly, for there is no other name higher than this. In the Old Testament, God speaking through Isaiah says, I am the Lord. This is my name. This is who I am. This is my identity, my status. I am the Lord. And Jesus now returned to heaven, now in heaven, enthroned there at the right hand of God the Father, is no longer to be thought of as a man, alone in his humility. Instead, he is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. This is his exaltation. Mind you, a a clever person might raise just a, a little query here. Wasn't Jesus already called Lord? When the Christmas angels announced that there was to be a baby born, didn't they say today, in the city of David, do you remember the Christmas quotation? In the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So how can Jesus be given given a name which he has already? It's a good question, and let me suggest an answer. I'm going to talk about King Charles. You recognize, do you, on the screen, the symbols of British sovereignty, the orb, the scepter, and, of course, the crown. Now, let me ask you, is Charles king? Well, of course he is. He's King Charles III. But the answer really is yes and no. He became king the moment the queen died. And so he, present tense, is king. But that was a private moment. It was completely unnoticed by any of us, his subjects. And for that reason, there's an event that is still coming. Put it in your diaries, it's June the 3rd. They reckon. You'll see, June the 3rd. 
when, when Charles will be crowned. It's his coronation. Now, will that coronation make him any more a king, any more regal, any more royal? Well, no. So you'll know then that, yes, he became king, but he's going to become king as well. The difference is that once his kingly status was only known to a few individuals in a remote village in Scotland during his coronation, which will be broadcast, you can imagine, worldwide, everyone on earth will have the opportunity to see him crowned as he already is king. And it's the same, therefore, of Jesus. He who was always in nature, very nature, God and Lord, having completed his earthly mission, is now being crowned Lord. And it may not be long before all the earth will share in that reality. For as Paul says, this new reality is this, that at the name of Jesus... We now know what name it is. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge. Oh, yes, they'll know. They acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christians believe, don't we? That Christ is now enthroned in heaven, surrounded by angels who sing the praises of the one who they know is King of kings and Lord of lords. And perhaps the worship that we bring here in this place is a pale reflection of that heavenly scene. But we believe with Paul that one day all heaven and earth will recognize him to be Lord. And those of us who have put our faith and trust in him will join our voices in praising him for his great salvation. For Paul, there is no greater example of humility for us to follow than Jesus Christ. He is the antidote to human conceit. He's the one whose example of humility punctures our own self-importance. And if we shouldn't follow, then our deceitful hearts... And if we can't find our way to following advice, then we must look to him as our great example. Paul's message is clear. Stop looking to your own, uh, your own interests and fix your eyes on Jesus. And by, by doing so, learn the joy of Christian living. I wonder if you went to Sunday school and learnt about this J O. Why, I can see some heads. Now, if you want real joy, so the line went, if you want real joy in your Christian life, you put J, Jesus, first. And then you put O, others. And lastly, you put Y, yourself. That was the little Sunday school thing. But this message isn't for Sunday school children alone. If there is selfish in any of our adult lives... I think we can all hold up our hands to that. How can we expect to know that joy in Christian living that Paul speaks about? And if Paul were to be here today and put the spotlight on TBC, I wonder if he would ask questions like, are there in your church folk who are lonely? Are there others in your fellowship who are unwell, who are in hospital, 
Are there church folk who are finding life hard? Any depressed? Any anxious? And you know how blunt Paul was. The finger would be going. You should be putting your interests to one side and you should be putting the interests of those others first, considering what you could be doing. Could you call them? Could you visit them? Could you send them a card, an email? Could you offer practical help? And what about those church workers, the staff, those who are giving time, giving sacrifice of their own personal time to take responsibility in the church? Are they flagging? Are they finding it hard? Paul knew how difficult Christian ministry was. And what about you? Will you put your interests, your self-interests to one side and say, I need to encourage them and I need to do so generously and I need to do so frequently? Do it. Are there jobs in the church that need doing? Does everyone else in the community need serving as a church body? Yes, we would know that they do. Put, Paul would be blunt. Here was a man that spent and was spent in the service of Christ. Every fiber of his being was given to service of his fellow human beings. And he calls us to be similar. And he says, if, if you do so, choice, chances are joy will be present in your Christian service. Let me finish then with this. If you're not a Christian and have been thinking, well, this, this narrative about Jesus, if it's all true, why ever, why did he ever bother to leave heaven and humiliate himself in this way, going as far as to die on a cross? What motivated him? Well, it's because this was the only way. The only way that we can enter a right relationship with God. This is why in love he came. He came down to earth. He died. And through his death and through our putting our trust and faith in him, we can know the forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of God's care for us now in this life and in the hereafter. The first step, though, is a hard one for us. You may remember it yourselves. And it's a step that involves humility. We have to put aside the thinking about ourselves the how good I am and I'm okay, aren't I, really? We have to put that humility to one side and we have to come to the cross and recognize that we are not as we should be and we're in need of someone to put us right. Will you consider that first step this morning? Because the final step, one that we all look forward to as we draw our final breath, is the moment when we move into eternal joy in the presence of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May his name be praised. Amen.